Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are thankful that we can come together on this Lord's Day to worship You in truth and spirit. Knowing because of the work of Christ, we are able to come to You. Knowing that our sins have been paid for. Knowing that He has given us the righteousness that we could never have earned. And we rejoice, Father, and worship You because of that wonderful and great truth. We come, Father, asking that Your Spirit might come and dwell in this place today and do that work that only He can do of giving us understanding, of giving us insight into Your truth, of growing us in grace and knowledge. We pray, Father, for Your church universal as it gathers throughout the world this day that many would hear the truth and many would come into your kingdom. We thank you for the truth, Father, that you are bringing your people into your church, that you will flood the nations with the gospel, and that many will come to Christ. We pray, Father, for our own community here, that you would be pleased to use us in this place to reach those who need Christ. We pray that we would be faithful to this task of evangelism. Pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their needs. Pray that you would meet those and that they would be able to return to us quickly. Pray that all that would be said and done this day would be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll again read verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3 beginning with verse 1. This is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of a bishop or overseer or pastor, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of all good behavior, Hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice lest being puffed up with pride, he falls into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he falls into reproach and the snare of the devil. Mark Dever, the pastor first of Capitol Hills Baptist Church, thank you, in Washington, D.C., said, Churches rarely grow past the maturity of their leaders. It may be possible, but it certainly is not likely. The implication is that choosing elders can be either a significant help or a significant hindrance to the maturity and growth of the congregation. Mature, able leaders will model godly behavior and teach sound doctrine which will promote congregational health and growth. Immature leaders who are less than able to teach will model behavior that may not be above reproach and will teach doctrine that may not conform to godliness, both of which will likely put a low cap on the maturity level of the members because they are not hearing sound doctrine and seeing it lived out by their leaders. This evidently was happening there in Ephesus, as we have already looked at earlier in an earlier sermon. And that's one of the reasons why Paul wrote this epistle to the church there at Ephesus. Of course, it is addressed to Timothy, but it was read publicly in the church there at Ephesus to encourage them to seek to have godly leaders, godly elders, godly pastors. 
And I want to continue looking at the office of pastor elder and understand how important this office is to the church as Mark Dever speaks of. If a church makes a mistake and puts the wrong man in this office, it can be critical to the health of the church and its future. And as I've already mentioned to you in a previous sermon, this church needs to begin thinking ahead to bring in a co-pastor with me because one day I will be moving toward the back, I guess you would say, and let him be forefront in the pulpit. And we need to be prepared for that. We need to be praying for that, that God would lead us to the right man or men as far as elders are concerned. And Scripture is not silent on this subject. It gives us plenty of information to be wise in the choosing of elders. A church must be biblical. It must be wise. It must be patient, prayerful in seeking who God would have to govern His people in a local church. Any candidate for the office of elder must meet these qualifications that are stated here in 1 Timothy. Of course, this is not the only place where elders and pastors are mentioned. We already have looked at Acts chapter 20 and what Paul said to the elders there. And we see in Titus as well as in 1 Peter, the issue of elder is mentioned. And from these passages, we see that a good candidate is known by his behavior, his character. Behavior, of course, reveals a person's character. And one's character is of utmost importance in this office of elder. I know of churches that move too quickly in seeking to have elders ruling in their church, and it caused problems. Sad to say, some Baptist churches end up simply having what I call glorified deacons instead of elders that are set apart by God. And we must realize that there are different opinions pertaining to elders. Some churches have the view that there's three offices, ruling elders, teaching elders, and deacons. Matter of fact, uh, Calvin had the view of a three-office. Now, most Baptist churches, of course, have the view of a two-office, that the ruling and teaching elder is the same individual. And we have that, of course, stated in our Constitution and bylaws. And there is the elder and deacon, the two offices in the church. And we believe that all elders must be apt to teach and rule. Matter of fact, his ruling comes from the authority of God's Word to be able to teach God's Word. And we see that Paul is clearly uh, referring to that here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now we believe that all pastors must be able to be faithful in this particular office because he is a man of God and has these characteristics that are mentioned by Paul in chapter 3. Now, some churches put men in office simply because they are honest business men, and that too can cause some issues in a church. Now, I remember, uh, and I mentioned this last week, a person called to this office must have what we call an internal calling and an external calling. Internal calling, of course, is the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, convincing him that he has set him apart for this particular position. And it's not only recognized by him, but it's also recognized by the congregation, which would be the external calling. The congregation sees that he has these particular gifts that God gives a pastor. Now, we have to understand that God has at least one pastor for the church, but it's good to have a plurality, depending upon, of course, the church and the size of the church. Now, these qualifications that we've already looked at, uh, blameless, which uh, we referred to as above reproach, something that will not stick to a person, even though there may be accusations brought against them, they do not stick. But he's also a man of one wife, and that, of course, is connected to the ruler of his home. So you can see that we're not just going verse by verse as far as 
how they're listed there, but some of these are connected to others, so we kind of jump around in this particular chapter and we'll continue to do that. Now, of course, he must give evidence, first and foremost, that he is a man of God, that he loves God, and he loves God's sheep and willing to faithfully pastor God's sheep. He doesn't forsake the brethren. He is actively involved in the ministries of the church, faithfully overseeing the ministry and participating in the ministries. How in the world can a pastor pastor a church if he's not involved in the ministries of the church? He must not stay locked up in his office all the time. Of course, he's to be in his office studying wherever that office may be. I have, of course, as many of you know, two offices, one at home and one here. Uh, quite often I will get up in the middle of the night and do my studying. That's why I have an office at home or get up early in the morning and do my studying, but I also have office here at the church where I keep most of my books. Uh, and you're welcome to use my books if you'd like to, as long as you return them. I have had some that have not been returned in the past. I guess God wanted that person to have them more than me. But anyway, uh, you're quite welcome to them if you would like to browse to my office. My office is open to anyone that likes to come in. It's not a closed office, so I welcome you to come in. But a pastor must know his congregation. I remember years ago, we had a young girl from Mississippi College that attended our church while she was at Mississippi College. And, and one day I was talking to her one Sunday about her church in Birmingham, a rather large church. And I was asking her about her pastor, and she mentioned a few things about him. I said, uh, well, what kind of relationship do you have with your pastor? And she said, well, I've never actually talked to my pastor. Uh, I've, I've met him before, shook his hand, but I've never talked to him. And I thought to myself, that church is too big if she has never been able to talk to her pastor. Um, now, another reason for plurality of elders is just that, so that elders might know their congregation. When a congregation gets so large that it doesn't, take care of its members, it doesn't have the opportunity to speak one-on-one -on -one with its members, then it's too large and it needs other elders, or it may need to look at the possibility of planning another church. I think that's the best idea uh, when a church just gets so large that it needs to actually plant another church somewhere where the members are. Um, but we must realize that Scripture does teach about a plurality of elders. Now, it's difficult for some pastors, of course, to uh, pastor churches with more than a couple of hundred people. And that's when it, of course, needs to realize that it has to have a plurality of elders. And Charles Spurgeon recognized that on the back of your order of worship today. It speaks about how he reached out to his members through the office of elder. Uh, I was reading where John Piper said that it took him 12 years to teach his church so that they finally came to the point of having elders there in Bethlehem in Minneapolis. And I thank God that our congregation continues to grow, and if it continues to grow, then we realize that we need more than just one elder pastor. Uh, my prayer list continues to grow as we add members, and that means I have to spend more time in prayer. Matter of fact, uh, Pastor Tiago and I, when he was here, we would divide the prayer list up so that it wouldn't be so long. Um, when I pray for you as members, I don't just say, please bless such and such today. No, I want to know what your needs are so that I can pray for you specifically and pray for those needs that you have. And, and that takes some time. That can consume a lot of your time. And that's another reason why there's importance of having a plurality of elders so that there might be a healthy church and for its future. So let us continue to look at these particular qualifications of the elder pastor. Now it's interesting that Paul says very little about the elder as far as things like his prayer life and his ability to witness and his ability to stand strong upon the Word of God and ethical issues and things like that. But what we have to keep in mind, those things fall under the work of the elder. What he's dealing with here in chapter 3 is the qualifications, his character. So his primary calling is to watch over the souls of the flock of God that God has given him in the local church. 
And the elder is to be light and salt in this world, just as every Christian is. Now, I remind you, as I reminded you last week, as we look at these characteristics, these qualifications for an elder, realize that these are qualifications for every single Christian. These who are set apart, they are exemplified in their life and they have the calling. But every single Christian is to seek to have these particular qualifications in their life. As I mentioned last week, there's not super Christians and they're normal Christians. No, we are all called to be faithful Christians. So as I go through this and speak primarily to elder, pastor, and we do have men that are training for the elder pastor, I'm not speaking to just them, I'm speaking to all of us. So we see that this is our calling as Christians. So an elder, as well as a Christian, is to be salt and light in the world. He's to shine forth the gospel in his witnessing life. He's not to be lazy about the things of God. He is not to be satisfied with the spiritual condition of the church, but he is to constantly be overseeing the church and seeking to grow the church spiritually, first and foremost. He is to seek to give himself to spiritual welfare of those who God has placed under his authority. He's responsible for that. One day he will have to stand before God and give an account of how he pastored the congregation that God gave him. Now that in itself is very fearful for those who are called into the ministry, knowing that our accountability is first and foremost to God and that one day we will have to give an account. His work is to look after God's sheep and to follow in the steps of Jesus. As stated there in verse 5, to take care. Now that particular Greek word, take care, is only used one other time in the New Testament. And the other time that that Greek word is used is in the story of the Good Samaritan. And it says that the Good Samaritan took care of the man, of course the Jew, that was beaten and left for dead. So what we have there is a picture of how a pastor is to care for his congregation in that story of the Good Samaritan. Elders are to be men having a heart for other people, a desire to take care of those people. He is to weep with them when they weep, and He is to rejoice with them when they rejoice. Now, as I have studied the work of a pastor and read a number of books over uh, years and studied those books pertaining to being a pastor, I'm kind of like John Piper who said, it can't get much more discouraging than the book And the book that he's speaking of is Richard Baxter's book, Reformed Pastor. Because it's a good and states so high and the pattern that he sets for us is just so often awesome. The story of his life is so admirable. He's one of those Spurgeon-like people that when you read them, you feel like quitting. And that's true. When you read some of these books that have been written by the Puritans and others like Richard Baxter, uh, and you see the high calling of an elder, sometimes you just feel like quitting, saying, you know, there's no way I can be that kind of man. But we have to remember what the Presbyterian pastor Samuel Miller said. He said, you will not find these characteristics in their fullness in anybody. And how true that is. I mean, nobody experiences them to their full extent. We're always striving to please God and fulfill the qualifications that God has given us. So we have to keep that in mind, even when we look for an individual to fill this office, that he is not perfect. No pastor is perfect. There's only been one individual that's perfect. Of course, that's Jesus Christ himself. But yet he has a desire to be perfect. He has the desire to pursue holiness, and please His heavenly Father. Now in 1 Timothy, Paul deals with the work of the elder, his calling, character, and his conduct. And he deals with his personal life, his private life, and his public life. 
Now we saw last week that an elder is to be blameless, as I've already mentioned. He's to be above reproach. Charges against him do not stick. He's the husband of one wife, and he must rule his family well. Now in one sense, you could say that these go hand in hand, being blameless and above reproach, which is closely connected to marriage and family life. And as Paul says, if he can't rule his own family, how in the world can he rule the house of God? And Paul continues the qualification. He says, let him be temperate. That word, some translations say sober-minded or clear-minded. This word also is only used three times in the New Testament here and then later In verse 11, it speaks of their wife. And then in Titus 2.2, and it speaks of older men being temperate. But we must have the mind of Christ, common sense, thinking rightly pertaining to the Word of God and being able to address all issues that might arise within God's church and be able to give spiritual advice. Of course... The pastor is not infallible, but the Word of God is infallible. And that's what he must teach, the Word of God to his people and use the Word of God to be able to address any situation that may arise. I've I've mentioned to you before, in my very first pastorate, I had a deacon that enjoyed coming to my office and trying to argue with me. Uh, The thing, though, that he would not do was bring his Bible. So one day I finally told him, After he said to me, well, I don't want to use the Bible to argue with you. I said, well, then we're not going to discuss anything because my purpose as pastor is only to use God's Word. And he said, well, you know it better than me. Uh, Okay, if I know it better than you, then I think you ought to listen. I didn't say this to him, but this is what I thought. I think you ought to listen to me and be teachable. But he was unteachable. And he didn't want to hear the things of God. But yet that's the responsibility of a pastor, to teach the Word of God, to speak the truth to them. Not give his opinion, but state what God says. And he must be able to share the gospel clearly with unbelievers, and he must constantly be growing in biblical truth. Notice what Paul says to the church at Colossae. In writing to the church at Colossae in chapter 1, He says in verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray to you, for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now he's primarily speaking to the elders here. That you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, being fruitful in every good deeds and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to the glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of Love. So we see that Paul is emphasizing what their responsibility is as far as using God's Word to speak the truth and grow the church. So we see that the elder pastor must exercise godly wisdom with humility and grace. He is to set an example. He's to set an example in speech, in love, in conduct, in faith, and purity. Of course, he cannot do that unless he's walking in the Spirit. Now, the next two qualifications are closely uh, connected to this word, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior. Listen to what John Piper wrote. He is sensible. He is prudent. He is reasonable. He has good judgment. He sees things as they really are. He knows himself well. He understands people and how they respond. He is in touch with reality such that there are no great gaps between he, what he sees in himself and what he sees in others. So we see that he must be 
a man that is sensible, a man has good judgment, a man that is able to look at people and understand them and respond to them in a right way. If a church does not have such a man, as Mark Dever says, it is best to be patient and keep looking. Sometimes a church can get too hasty to seek to find a man simply just to fill the office. What does Paul tell us later in chapter 5 verse 22? Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share when other people sin. Keep yourself pure. So it's better to be patient. It's better to wait on God to raise up other elders than to share in the guilt of making a mistake prematurely appointing men who are not ready. Matter of fact, some of you know because you've been here since the get-go that this church made that mistake early on. We appointed some men to be elders that should not have been elders of this church and it caused some major problems. It caused uh, a split in the church, sad to say. But it was due to the fact that hands were laid too quickly upon some men. We must know how to care for the flock, spiritual maturity. He says also that he must be hospitable. And what does that word hospitable mean for us? Well, kind to strangers. In other words, he must be friendly, not only to those that are in the congregation, but to those that are outside the congregation. Listen to what Piper says. He is given to being kind to newcomers. He makes them feel at home. His home is open for ministry. He does not shrink back from having guests. He is not a private person. And I've known some throughout my pastorate, some that actually were my pastorate, that were not that kind of people. That is the kind of person that he must be, hospitable, kind to strangers. Listen to what Kent Butterfield of Nine Marks said. What is hospitality? Simply put, basic misconceptions of hospitality persist. Some think it's just about inviting people over to enjoy a meal so that the wife gets the house ready, cooks a delicious meal. Some take the word entertainment from Hebrews 13.2 and attempt to amuse their company. But the point of hospitality is to show love toward the stranger. And what better way to do that than to present them with God's Word? Hospitality is more than having a cookout. Now certainly, out of a concern for the welfare of the people, we want to refresh them with food and drink if we can. But Christian hospitality essentially includes the Christian faith. And I think we need to understand that and seek to apply that. That's what we try to do with what we call our hospitality meal here on Sunday after our service each week. And then he goes on and he says, apt to teach, literally qualified to teach. And I believe this, of course, is the main responsibility of an elder pastor, though some churches downplay this particular qualification. He must be able to explain the Word of God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that he has to be a great gifted speaker like Charles Spurgeon or others that have gone before us, but he must have the gift of teaching. In other words, he's able to divide God's Word rightly so that Christians are able to understand it, able to grasp it, and able to be fruitful as they seek to apply God's Word through the preaching of it. Now, I believe all the elders should be able to give um, regular teaching and preaching schedule. That's what, of course, we try to do with our men here, those that are preparing for the ministry. We allow them to come on Sunday night and Wednesday night and preach and teach and also in Sunday school. And I encourage you to support them, especially on Sunday night. I encourage you, if you're able, I know common sense pertaining to that. Some of you live a great distance away or not able to be here on Sunday night. But if you're able to be here, I encourage you to be here. 
to hear them proclaim God's word on Sunday night. It's always encouraging to have a few people in the congregation when you're preaching to them. So uh, please be faithful to that as our men continue to teach us and preach to us on Sunday night. But he must be somebody that's equipped to preach God's word. Calvin said, I'm a good scholar and theologian that I may be a good pastor. Do you understand that? You must be a good scholar and theologian so that you may be a good pastor. Now, there's two important considerations as far as his ability to teach, and that is giftedness and passion. He must have the giftedness that comes by the Holy Spirit, and he also must have a passion to preach God's Word. I mean, how in the world can you preach God's Word without being passionate? I mean, it's so wonderful. It's the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about God. You have a passion when you get into pulpit. Someone that does not have a passion when they preach God's Word, evidently they don't have a calling. It's kind of like what Jeremiah says, God, you put a fire in my bones. He could not withhold preaching the Word of God. I know there was a short time when I was out of the ministry for a couple of years, and it was burning in my bones to get back in the pulpit and preach God's Word. A man that is called of God's Word cannot just simply sit around and do nothing as far as the Word of God is concerned. He must understand what Paul says there in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Now, when is in season and out of season? All the time, right? That's what he's talking about. Be ready all the time. And he says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. That's the responsibility of a pastor-elder. Now, the next qualification, of course, can be controversial to some. Not given to wine. Literally, not a drunkard. It also can be translated free from wine. Now this Greek word is used only here and only in Titus 1.7. Now people lose their soberness, their good behavior, their temperance, and their self-control when they are under the influence of alcohol. It has the idea of being temperate, of being sober. An elder pastor must sacrifice certain things so that he might be a godly example before his congregation. Now some say, well, what's wrong with a glass of wine every now and then or a beer? Well, I'm not going to condemn someone for it, but what I am going to say or I'm going to ask If your drinking causes a little one to stumble, then you need to cease. We must be examples before our little ones. Is it worth causing someone that sees you that could not be like you, could not do it in moderation, is it worth causing them to become a drunkard? Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I've noticed that Christians who were converted later in life, who had alcoholics in their family, they often become teetotalers. Why? Because they saw how alcohol destroyed their family. This past week, as we had our pastor's meeting, we call it Bethel Brothers, one of the pastors there shared how he was an alcoholic before he became a Christian, all the way up to 29. And he said, since that day that God has saved me, alcohol has never touched my lips again because I know what it does to a person. An elder should keep himself free from alcohol in this day particularly in our society, because he knows what it will do to himself as well as others. And he's willing to give up something that he may delight in for the sake of others. A black pastor a number of years ago who was at RTS over the library, we were talking one day, and he said to me, he said, you know what? One of the reasons... I believe we should not as pastors drink alcohol beverages is because if you've had an alcohol beverage and you get an 
phone call in an emergency where you have to leave immediately to go check on a particular member because of some emergency that has risen, and you show up with alcohol on your breath, what kind of impression do you give your church member? Now, some may say, you don't know what you're missing. Well, that's fine. I've lived without it for 68 years, and I can go a few more years without it, especially if it means keeping a little one from stumbling. And Paul, of course, addresses dealing with eating meat and that which is sacrificed to idols and so on, and he says, you know, for the younger one, do not cause them to stumble. But the primary characteristic of an elder is modeling godliness before others in his work and actions. He must be an example. As it says in 4 verse 12, set an example for the believers in faith, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So we must seek to do that. He must also avoid all appearance of evil, which means he must not be violent or greedy for money, as Paul says. An elder must not be one who loses his temper, which might lead to quarreling and fighting. He is to be a peacemaker instead. I remember a number of years ago, one of the pastors shared how he heard of another pastor who was having a difficult, difficult time with one of his deacons. And eventually in that particular meeting, I don't know if the pastor said it to the deacon or the deacon said it to the pastor, let's go out back and settle the issue. Well, that's not how issues are to be settled. Uh, when I talk about going out back, I hope you understand what I'm talking about there. But they must settle those issues in a godly manner. Now, I know one reason why some seek to settle it in that manner is because there are those who are in the church who are not converted and they continue to think you settle matters in a worldly way. He cannot wear his feelings on his sleeve or carry resentment. And there will be times that an elder pastor faces disagreement. And during those times, the elder must remain calm. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that he can't be stern and, stern and firm on a particular issue. No, he must be stern and firm on biblical issues, especially when he's being attacked or those issues are being attacked. There are some issues that you must be willing to take a stand on and you must be willing to die for, even if it means being fired from your church on those particular issues. A big problem is preachers who are greedy for money, as Paul points out here. And of course, this is prevalent, especially among what we call these TV preachers. Did you know that Joel Osteen is worth over $180 million? He has a mansion worth $27 million. He receives an income salary of $30 million a year, $9 million for his books, $22 million in stock. But you know what? He's not the most wealthy. Kenneth Copeland, net worth is $760 million. He's the founder of Eagle Mountain International Church, if you want to call it a church located on 150 acres near Fort Worth, Texas. Now, I would say that those individuals are greedy for money. And therefore, they're disqualified. Of course, when I get invited to talk on one of these talk shows with Joel Osteen, I'm going to tell Joel Osteen that. I hope you caught what I said there, when I get invited. <laughs> but those men need to understand what Paul says. And of course, that's just one of the qualifications that they don't meet. There's other qualifications that are stated here that they don't meet also. But we see that instead of being violent and greedy, he is to be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not covetous. He isn't to be harsh. He isn't to be mean-spirited. 
but inclined to tenderness. He is to be tough only when those circumstances demand this form of love. And it is a form of love when you are tough on certain issues. His words are to be helpful. His words are to be encouraging, as Paul clearly instructs. He is to be peaceful, humble, not speaking of himself or his own achievements, but count others better than himself and quickly give God all the credit and all the glory for any accomplishment that he may accomplish in his ministry. He's to put the kingdom of God first in all things that he does. His lifestyle doesn't reflect a love for luxury, but he's to be a generous giver, not anxious about his finances or his future. Not money-oriented, but he is to be ministry-driven. Now, we also see that Paul says he cannot be a novice or recent convert. And we see the reason why he states very clear there, why he cannot be a novice, uh, a recent convert, because he might become puffed up with pride. And then there's the great warning there, and fall into the same condemnation of as Satan or as the devil. Now children, what was the devil's sin? Well, the devil's sin was pride. He exalted himself above God and pride is a great sin to fall in. And when Satan and the other angels there in heaven had the sin of pride, those angels became devils. It's troubling that some have ignored this particular warning and they've laid hands on a man too quickly, someone that is a novice, and it has caused great hardship and heartache in churches. I mean, this office is a sacred office and it's not to be treated lightly. It would be better to not have an elder than to put an elder that should not be put in the church, one that is a recent convert, because he's dealing with that which is of utmost importance. And those called of God are eager and willing to serve, and he must be ready to serve God and his people in a biblical manner, and he must himself be willing to be patient and wait for God's timing. It is easy for some to desire the office due to being filled with pride, is what Paul is pointing out there. To be able to stand before a group of people and speak is very enticing to some. So therefore, people must realize that. A congregation must realize that. And they must make sure that this individual is called of God. And therefore, if he's called of God, then he will be willing to submit to God's Word. Some seek the office simply for power and money. In those days, there were those who had done this, and Paul is addressing that. And such persons today also do the same thing. But we must realize that God has stated His standard, and we must not in any way lower that standard. He must also have a good reputation among others. It must be evidence that He, of course, has been truly converted by God's grace, and God has been pleased to set him apart. And he must make sure that he no longer is entangled in sin, that he has put off the old man and put on the new man, and that God has made him a preacher. Now, these men must meet these characteristics. It must be clear that their former life has been put behind them. God is able to take great sinners. Augustine was a great sinner, if you've ever read the life of Augustine. And he wasn't converted till he was 30 years old. And God changed his life, and he put off the old man and put on the new man, and he became a great man of God. There's those in our day and time, just like uh, the pastor that I mentioned earlier. Matter of fact, uh, Brother Ken has visited here before, and I think I want to have him sometime come and uh, preach and share how God worked in his life and took a man who was an alcoholic at the age of 29 and converted him and made him a man of God. 
And there must be evidence that we are God's children. Uh, John presents that in 1 John. He gives us six evidence this morning. Matter of fact, when I was um, uh, teaching the young people's class, I shared with them the six evidence of being born again. We need to examine ourselves, as Paul says, to make sure that these six things are in our life to know that we are a new creation. For the devil is wise, and the devil will use immature men to ensnare others and to bring confusion concerning the gospel, as well as what the Bible says about who Christ is, about justification as well as sanctification. And we know that throughout history, Satan has used men to pervert God's word, to pervert God's truth with all the isms, Gnosticism and uh, Docicism and Monticism and Doptionism, Sibelism, Modalism, Arianism, Plagiarism, and Gnosticism. All of those isms came about why? Because men who were not men of God brought error into the church. So therefore, we must understand those and we must preach against those particular isms. Now, man of God must give evidence of all of these characteristics in his life. He's to be set apart to the office. It did not, um, he cannot lower the standards that God has stated here. And, and he's not allowed to pick and choose, or the church is not allowed to pick and choose which ones that he must have as in character. No, he must have all of these in his life. But remember what Samuel Miller said. You will not find these in their fullness in anybody's life. They're not fullness in my life or no other pastor's life. But they must all be evident to some degree in their life. Some will be at a higher degree than others, just like in your life. As a Christian, you can look at these and you can see, man, I'm doing pretty good in that particular area, but man, I'm failing greatly in that particular area. You may look at it and say, man, I'm failing in all of them, but at least they're there to some extent, to some degree. But by the grace of God, we're all growing, if we're a Christian, in those particular areas. If you're a young Christian, then you've got a long ways to go. If you're a Christian for a number of years, then you've grown some. If you haven't grown some, then there's a problem there. We must all be growing in the grace of God, and these all must be evident in our life if we are truly a Christian. This morning, as I was reading my Puritan prayer I want you to listen. This one hit me, and I said, you know, it goes along pretty good with my sermon. Oh, Lord, help me never to expect any happiness from this world. And I stopped and I thought to myself, how often have I expected happiness from this world? But only from Thee. Let me not think that I shall be more happy by living to myself. For I can only be happy if I'm employed for Thee. And if I desire to live in this world only to do and suffer what Thou hast allotted for me, teach me that if I do not live a life satisfied to Thee, I shall not live a life that will satisfy myself. Did you hear that? If I do not live a life that is satisfied to thee, then I'm not going to be satisfied myself. Help me to desire the spirit and temper of angels who will willingly come down to the lower world to perform thy will. Though their desires are heavenly. In other words, they'd rather be back up in heaven, but they have to come down here to do the will of the Father and they willingly obey the Father and not set in the least upon earthly things, then I shall be of the temper I ought to have. Help me not to think of living to Thee in my own strength, but always to look to and rely on Thee for assistance. Teach me. There is no greater truth than this, that I can do nothing of myself. And of course, he's referring to what Jesus said, you can do nothing apart from me. Lord, this is the life of the unconverted man can live. Yet, 
It is an end that every godly soul presses after. Let it be then my concern to devote myself and all to Thee. Make me more fruitful and more spiritual. For barrenness is my daily affliction and load. How precious is time. And how painful to see it fly with little done to good purposes. I need thy help. Oh, may my soul sensibly depend upon thee for all sanctification. And every accomplishment of thy purposes for me. For the world and for thy kingdom. I pray that this would be true of me, O God. This I pray in Christ's name and for His glory. Is that your prayer? That you pray that this prayer would be true of thee. Let us pray. Father, as we have thought upon these qualifications that you have for a man of God, we realize that these qualifications for each one of us as Christians. And may they be our desire, Father. For we know that these qualifications have been perfectly fulfilled by the great high priest, the great preacher of all times, Christ Himself, And if we are in Christ, then our desire is to be like Him. So may it be that we desire these qualifications to be in our life so that we might shine forth Thy grace and Thy mercy to others. Father, if it not be our desire, we pray that You would bring about conversion so that it would be our desire. Do that work that only your Spirit can a birthing people from above, of changing hearts, causing them to see their sinfulness and their need of Christ this day, so that they might repent and look to Him in true repentance and saving faith. And it's in Christ's name we pray.